Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. Welcome back to episode seven. And so we'll continue with Sue Maslin today talking about the production of The Dressmaker and also another production called The Show Must Go On, which is a documentary. So enjoy the rest of the interview with Sue Maslin. And so tell us a little bit about the production, how, how that happened and, and getting some of the other creatives together and getting, uh, getting it made because even production itself can be sometimes hard task. Yeah, no, it, it, was, it, it was tough. Um, production-wise for a number of levels because it was such an ambitious production, um, not the least of which is, like, you just think about it. You've got a cast of thousands. Um, you, it's all shot in country locations. You've got couture costuming um, and you've got to burn the town down. And so I, I had all of those kind of problems going through my head at the same time that I was being told very clearly by the screen agencies and the market, you know, you've got to keep the budget low. You cannot have a budget more than $12 or $13 million, um, which in those days was considered low. It's even lower now. But um, mm. And I had, as I do on, you know, all the productions that I've ever been involved in, I personally do the script breakdown and I do the first schedule and first budget uh, myself because I want to know every single element that sits inside the um, story and the script. Um, and how much it's going to cost. And I'd done that and, I, you know, it came out at about $16.5 million. I just said, can't do it for that. So we've got to turn it around the other way. The minimum budget for this will be, you know, 16 to $17 million. So, therefore, I need to make decisions that will give people confidence to put up that kind of money. And that means selecting the best possible editor, the best possible DOP, the best possible costume designer, the best possible cast. And Jocelyn, um, of, you know, is a very talented director and people wanted to work with her, which was fantastic. So the first choice is select the best possible director <laughs> um, to deliver, you know, the really quality crew and cast. So... So we raised the kind of money and I'd got, you know, because I had worked out all of those challenges, the bit that I didn't figure on that I really got caught out was finding a location that made sense for the story and that is Dungatar is a little kind of crappy town in the middle of nowhere in the wide open plains with a hill upon which mm -hmm. sits Molly's house. Now, we spent about three years driving around Australia trying to find that bloody hill, <laughs> and you find a hill, but you find lots of hills around it, or you find the plains, but no hill. Um, you can't find, you know, a little hill that pops up outside of a, um, a town. Mm. And I had budgeted that we would find the town. So one day Jocelyn and the production designer, the very talented Roger Ford, came to me and said, Sue, we're going to have to build the town. We're going to have to find the hill and then build the town. And my heart sank because I knew what that would mean and it literally meant having to go out and raise another million dollars, which mm. I did. But that was the right decision and um, they were right to call it. And it was a matter of um, it was just one of hundreds, 
hundreds of decisions where you're kind of trying to weigh up do how do we get the money on the screen the best possible value without because we're going to have to make compromises along the way. Um, either I've got to go out and raise more money and you never have enough money. It doesn't matter what size your budget is. It's never enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to really do the hard yards. And Jocelyn and I, you know, we had to cut around four pages out of her beautiful script in order to be able to um, raise that extra money and to be able to um, uh, make, you know, the decisions that got uh, that town on the screen. Wow. And I, I assume as far as raising funds, that was all independently uh, funded from? Yeah. Wow. That's that's a big ask because, I mean, these days even, oh, I don't know, like, what was the last fi- Aussie film that was $12 million since since Dressmaker, well, most, I don't think? Yeah, most of them, um, if they're really big budget like that, they're studio pictures. So they're made yeah. here in Australia with Australian director or producer, but like Mad Max or... Um, mm. Uh, you know, so many of them are, um, yeah, they're uh, Baz Luhrmann. So and they're, they're basically um, studio pictures. So I had to make it look like a big film, you know, a really big, beautiful studio film in that sense. So every single person who worked on it really strived for those production values. And sometimes I find it no- annoying, but it's actually a compliment that it, it gets misreported and that the whole time it's, you know, a Hollywood movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Did you do, like, the interiors in studio or was that actually you built the whole set there and then you just shot it all there? No, it's a little, It's a bit of both. Um, yeah. The only set that we built inside was inside the interior of Molly's house. So we built a replica. Um, we, had, we built the town. On, we found the perfect hill which luckily for us was actually just out of Melbourne, down in the Yuyangs, um, so about a 35-minute drive. So that was brilliant. Um, and we built um, Molly's house on top of the hill and then we built a little replica in the studio so we could film all the interiors um, under control conditions that would save a massive amount of time rather than trying to film on the top of a windy hill. So that was the main, all the other interiors were found, were, you know, were actual and then dressed. Oh, okay. So, yeah, save yourself a bit of money there too, not having to build an entire interior set. Oh, there you go. Just be interesting because it, it flowed very well. Like I was wondering, oh, I wonder how that was shot. No, we did feel, there were about, uh, on the set, we did have um, interior, like just, for instance, Pratt's grocery store. So there was just oh, yeah. a room that was um, on set as an interior and also the chemist. I think we had an interior chemist. Um, yeah, they they were the other, you know, two interiors. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that actually is that's interesting in production. I find that that sometimes does help your, your film flow better if you have some interiors on location because then you kind of just give enough to the audience to go, oh, okay, that's all there. And it's not suddenly cut cut interior and then cut outside and it's you yeah. know, never matching the two. Yeah. So that no, always helps if you can just do that. And, and something like the dressmaker it was critical because, and this was the main reason as well as the fact we couldn't find a town, but one of the main reasons to build is that everything in the story in that little town uh, is in many ways reflected in the geography of the town. So depending on the character, who they looked out on, what 
building was across, who was spying on who, and then how all of them were looked up to that house on the hill and the hill looked down onto them. So the geography is built into the story and mm. uh, it's in the book. So we were by building, it meant that we could pres preserve um, the geography that was, um, you know, defined by the writing. Mm. And it really showed in the film. It was very easy to follow because some films you watch, you know, set in, in those times and they just cut away to certain shots, but you like okay, I'm just assuming that's the house down the road, but actually it didn't make sense. But in this one, it was actually very clear where people were looking, which was pretty cool actually because mm. you don't see that too often in films too. Um, so, you know, like I'm kind of thinking of like old westerns that you watch yeah. sometimes. It's just like yeah. cut to the front of the house, but I don't know where that is in the town. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there was something that, um, you know, Jocelyn and the DOP, Don McAlpine and Roger Ford, the production designer, they drew really, really detailed maps very early on. So, you know, the choreography was worked out uh, really, really clearly. And from your perspective, I guess, with the, during production, obviously in pre-production you probably would have had a lot of creative input of how the, the story needs to unfold. But during production, is do you stay back or do you still get quite involved as far as that? Yeah, um, during production... It raises the question of what's the producer's role um, during production and the producer's role is really one of problem solving. If, if you've actually done your job properly and the job really is most of it's in preparation, so, you know, you've got really good cast and crew, everybody knows what they're doing, it's really well planned, you've got the money, you've got the resources, then as a producer I don't believe you should be anywhere near set just, you know, because your job, you're always one or two weeks ahead planning to make mm. sure that everybody else on set can get their job done. And also um, I'm managing the investors and their expectations and reporting and all the finances, cost reporting, etc. And the other thing I'm doing is really working hard on marketing because, you know, for me, once you've got to the end of the film and doesn't matter how many years it's taken in development and financing, script development and getting the film made and shot and everybody has the rap party, you think, oh, we've hmm. got it. <laughs> uh, and then you've, you know, gone through the post and you finish the film, even at finishing the film and delivering at that point, you're 50% of the way through as a producer, only 50%, halfway. Hmm. For everybody yeah. else, it's the end of the journey. You're 50% through. Your job's not done until your film connects with audience. Otherwise, it's a waste of everybody's time. So for me, marketing is paramount. So I'm thinking about that uh, and working on stills, on briefing the stills photographers so we have great um, poster art, thinking about the press you know, kit and all of that stuff. But what happens is every day things go wrong, every mm. day. So my job yeah. is, yes, um, I'm problem solving, uh, budget's not enough, people don't, you know, can't do their job for whatever reason, the weather turns against you, the director in this instance, Jocelyn's father got very ill and she had to leave set. Um, like just mm. things go wrong all the time. Yeah. And so um, you're, as a producer, basically, yeah, problem solving, putting out fires, making sure everybody on set can keep working and keep doing their best work, but I'm certainly not there hanging around watching them work. <laughs>
yeah it's interesting let's talk about problem solving i mean in my my point of view it seems like once you get on set that's all it is is problem solving you, you do the creative part in pre-production and then when you're on set it's like from every department it's just how do we shoot this in this time or i oh, know the light's completely wrong blah 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 so it's just constantly that battle of of problem solving which you know a lot of people don't realize that they haven't really worked on a on a long form you know whether it's documentary or feature that that's that's the stamina you need you need that stamina to to constantly be able to problem solve because it just comes at you <laughs> and talking about your um, marketing which is i guess getting the film out the line with your budget did you have a marketing budget or was it something that someone else came in and like you know like universal and and gave you an extra budget on top because that's one thing I think a lot of indie filmmakers don't realize that they go, oh, here's my budget, but most likely they won't be able to get a large distributor, you know, like Universal on board, so they don't put that money away, and that's actually such a dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah, and I see. I mean, every year um, there's you know rounds of twenty to thirty low budget, no budget films that are made that most of them never see the light of day. Um, you know, outside of just, you know, their own little circle um, mm. because they've not ever really properly thought about uh, audience and about how you get to that audience. Uh, so I often get phoned up, you know, hey, I've just finished my feature, my first feature film. We've just finished it and they're terribly excited and I'm really excited for them. And they say, what do we do now? And I go, great question, but you should have asked that a year ago. You know, it's too late to be asking that question now um, for a whole bunch of reasons. The main one is that while you're actually filming and you've got your cast and locations and so on, uh, as a producer what you're doing is collecting assets for marketing. So you're not actively engaged in marketing at that point but you're getting the best possible stills photographs. And what that means is you don't just um, send somebody, you know, you know who's pretty handy with a camera to kind of follow the action filming and um, pick up a few stills. It's actually about storyboarding, shot listing, thinking about your characters, the scenarios, the best days in the schedule and thinking about the precise kind of shots that you want. So, for instance, you know, the poster treatment for the dressmaker mm. That is not just sending a stills photographer out, go and get Kate, see what you come back with. And um, we sat down, um, I had a bit of an idea, which was the idea um, right at the beginning when I read the book, couture costume, Australian outback and, you know, a bit of um, kind of revenge on her mind, you know, that, that thing, like, you know, kick ass, kick ass, Kate. Mm. So, so you know, you start to, you know, throw around those kind of ideas. That's the messaging you want to give give out, that this is going to be kick-ass and fun and stylish, but it's going to have visual irony. What's that costume doing in that setting, you know? Mm. So um, that's, um, yeah, so the elements were, you know, pick the best day where you've got that access to really good location Make sure that it's a day when Kate's not required to film for at least three hours so we can get her properly made up and in costume and so on for that shot and make sure we can get the Singer sewing machine because that's her weapon of choice. And then at that point I leave it up to the stills photographer and Kate to work it out. And the stills photographer, Ben King, um, did a beautiful job and came mm -hmm. back with, you know, exactly what I wanted. 
And that was done um, in the first week of the shoot. Doesn't just um, happen to fit around a very, very busy film schedule. You have to work it out with your director and your first AD how you can insert it into the schedule so you get time, time with the actors, time that, you know, on the best days with the best locations and the best actors present, you can um, actually storyboard and get the best kind of images. They don't just happen. And that's a really, really big mistake I see time and time again. Uh, you have terrible, you see, you know, terrible photographs um, and images because nobody has inserted them into the schedule and really thought them out. Yeah, the strategizing is so important to, you know, it's like succession planning, you know, like in businesses, you have that. Mm. Uh, what do you do next? And in a lot of filmmakers, it's like, make the film, but everyone will come see it now. And I'm like, no, that's the least of it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work that way. And look, of course it doesn't work that way because we're all swamped by content. You know, it's yeah. just pouring out of, you know, on our devices. The, the, you know, there's an oversupply of films and cinemas where, you know, attention is just constantly taken away by social media and all the other things that we do on our devices, um, not the least of which, you know, you, we also compete with live entertainment, you know, music, concerts, you know, theatre, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a hell of a lot of competition out there. So I guess the first and foremost question is what will make this film cut through? Why will somebody want to see this movie? What do I need to do in order to make it really easy for them to find it mm. and encourage them to see it? What are the elements? So, yes, you're quite right. All of that aspect of marketing is um, very important in pre-production, in production and, you know, is part of the process the whole way through. Um and what you're doing is building assets. You're building, you know, great social media clips, great images, um, poster design, branding, press kits, interviews, behind the scenes, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, in terms of actual marketing, during the, the shoot, you have to be terribly careful because you don't want to give away too much up front before the film comes out because you, you'll just blow it. If you've given away your best images or your best clips or whatever, no one's going to come back to it. They're just going to think it's old news by the time the film is released, you know, a year or so after you wrap. So it's um, a matter then of being very strategic about what comes out when. The only part of marketing that we do, and, you know, I'm a big believer in working with the social media platforms, um, that again, needs to be really thought through strategically uh, in order to, you know, look, most people can't put up a website and might have 300 followers on Facebook. But if you're doing it really sensibly, you actually want to build up a real fan base mm -hmm. and distributors won't put money into social media uh, marketing campaigns. You have to do that yourself. And I did that on The Dressmaker, but I worked very closely with the distributor so that they were clear we weren't going to put any images of Liam or Kate or um, Judy up that we weren't going to, you know, put any of our uh, behind the scenes or anything like that that would cross over into what they wanted to do down the track. But that left us with heaps of great things we could do, not oh. the least of which was put call-outs on social media for um, extras casting. Boy, did our numbers go skyrocket at that point. 
Yes, I mean, we had similar experience on Ben Hall that luckily uh, there was a lot of pre, I think before the film, during production, I think we ended up pushing it all the way up to like 10,000 or maybe 5,000 fans, yeah. you know, that, that were engaging with the social media as well, not just clicking like and at the end of it. So it's definitely, I think people do love that insight story, but you're right, you have to be so careful not to yeah. give away all the good stuff. Yeah. But, you know, it's funny because I, I worked with a social media strategist, um, Beatrix Coles, and she and I said, well, what kind of stuff, you know, are fans interested in? She said, Sue, you can show them what they ate for breakfast because fans don't get to see that. What happens in the mess tent? And I said, you've mm-hmm. got to be joking. And she said, no, that's the kind of stuff we can do. We can do really kind of funny, cool stuff behind the scenes that don't involve any of your um, lead actors, and that's exactly what we did, and people really loved it. So, yeah, we had about 7,000 fans um, uh, by the time we completed filming and then when the first trailer came out, it jumped to 21,000 and then just kept growing and we probably got about 85,000 still there. That's very nice and and it's so true. Like I was, uh, if you've been so secretive about the project, it just no one's going to watch it. Like uh, the new Ned Kelly film, for example, you know, it just no one went to see it because they were so secretive about it. You knew nothing that was happening with the film and then it just popped out of nowhere. Yeah. And then I know it's like on stand now, but they probably got obviously a bit more viewership because of it. But, yeah, like it's, you know, it, it, in the cinema it just died because no one knew and no one was involved in the process. Yeah. And I think today people are they wanting that, like you said, their breakfast, What did, you know. Yeah. And especially if it's like stars, people are, will kind of watch a little bit of or look at photos of them and see, oh, cool, they're doing this and that. So I definitely think that helps these days. That's and um, You just have to be clever. <laughs> yeah, you'd be clever. And look, you know, one thing that we could do was, um, you know, it, we were celebrating the fact that we were working with really fantastic costumiers making you know, couture work um, and we were able to show, you know, quite a bit behind the scenes, you know, in the makeup um, area or the costume department. And, again, not the hero outfits because, you know, that was the surprise waiting for audiences. But, you know, the details of how, you know, they made some of the things or the techniques mm-hmm. they were using or the ageing they were putting on costumes, a lot of that was a really good fun. Mm, people love so, that, so. so your brain, if, you know, if you're producing, your brain is always a step ahead of what needs to be done because it's all in the preparation. Everything you said before about preparation, 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 that's, you know, your job is constantly preparing so that um, by the time you come to be in production, everybody knows what they're doing and hopefully doing their best work. And by the time you get into the marketing, you've got great materials and you can um, be working really, really well with um, your distributor. Mm, That's right. And, you know, it's like you have to give it a chance to to have a – a win, I guess, because to me, every film until you get that final cut, you don't hundred percent know what it's what it's going to be. The film, and and if you've got that fan fandom and and people an audience, essentially, you've already built, you have a much better chance. With even if the film turns out okay, not brilliant, you'll still have people go see it because you've had you yeah. know, people were they had something in it with involved within that story, and not just kind of watch a trailer and that's face value kind of um, yeah, yeah, yeah. View, view on it. So I think that's today that's quite important and 
and, and you know some people are doing it but it still still seems to be a lot of aussie films where they're just super secretive and you don't see anything about it and then it's too late by the time it's released yeah, I mean, you've touched your finger, though, on a central conflict of our times, and that is how do streamers and the feature film sector work together um, or, you know, pay TV in the case of Stan? Um, because if the streamer or the pay TV is basically bankrolling the film, they don't want all of the attention to be um, necessarily on the, the theatrical, in which case they're sort of just doing a short theatrical so the film can um, qualify potentially for awards. It's a big part of it, certainly a big part of the strategy, for instance, something like The Irishman, but um, a collapsed two-week window before it goes straight onto a, um, a platform. So, um, the you know, from the perspective of the streamers and the um, pay TV people, they don't really care about the cinema business. You know, they don't need people to go into the cinemas, so they don't want to spend money on that campaign. Um, they just want eyeballs to come to their platform. Mm, so well. it's, you know, you've got an inherent tension there. The other thing is that it speaks to the fact that the whole business model is pretty much um, cracked wide open and people, you know, companies are going under left, right and centre at the moment because the streamers don't operate within what we call the feature film market where for the last, you know, 50 years, 50 or 60 years, um, films are essentially, you know, produced and financed by asking um, key players in the market, i.e. distributors, sales agents who sell to distributors in other territories other than your own and broadcasters to put money up front into feature films so you get market attachment and then with that you can attract screen industry funding and possibly private investment and some tax breaks, all of which mean that you get to make your movie. That model is pretty much collapsed now because you can't actually go up front and ask the market to put money in unless they can offset risk at the other end, which they were able to do for decades because they knew they could run the figures and they knew if they put a certain amount of money up front, they'd be able to make a television sale in this territory, they'd be able to get ancillaries, home entertainment, um, TV, pay TV, um, rentals, sell-through sell videos. All of those have gone, pretty much gone. You, there is no such thing as entertain, home entertainment now. Um, there, you know, TV networks do not buy feature films anymore. Um, pay TV are doing their own thing. They don't buy feature films. So there's kind of, uh, you know, there's no way to really offset that risk at the other end. Um, the, you know, streamers, Netflix and Amazon have come in and said that model's completely irrelevant to us. We don't need it. We'll just fully finance. We'll buy all the rights up front. Thank you very much. Yeah. I did see that. Um, only yesterday, I think it was announced that in Germany that now there there is royalties based on streaming for so they have to Netflix has to pay royalties to all the you know the actors, creatives, and producers and so on. So that's an interesting move because that might open a can of worms in in that sense that other territories might start going oh well hey, you know your guys are getting a you know a billion viewerships and you're you're paying up front and that's it. So that could be a, a bit of a solution for the problem, but I don't know. 
Um, I can't see how that's going to practically work at all um, mm. because uh, Netflix and Amazon are not required to disclose any data, and they don't. yeah, that's right. They disclose zero data. That is mm. actually their main game. It is the um, the collection of and the exploitation of data. The content is just the attractor. The business model is mm. the data. There's no way that they're going to be reporting um, anything to do with number of eyeballs and um, data to, in order to, you know, actually practically deliver that program. So I have no idea how that's meant to work. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I was just surprised. I was read it and I'm, maybe they're forcing them somehow. I don't know. It's, mm -hmm. it's a bit interesting because, yeah, they, there's quite a few uh, German or Nordic or those kind of shows, you know, that do quite well on Netflix. So that's going to be interesting to see yeah, how that plays out. Definitely watch this space. Um, they'll be watching it very closely here in Australia. We've got a um, very, very poor record in government of being able to step up and do anything about this. Um, our, our government has just sat on the sidelines, you know, on its hands and done nothing to, uh, to date to really protect the local industry in the sense of when I say protect, actually ensure that the local industry can compete with this all we're doing is siphoning off you know as i say half a billion dollars every year from australians overseas to to overseas companies yeah makes no sense and and then now we're part of the road department so hey <laughs> geez we, yeah we, we have no um we have no minister of arts anymore we have no cultural policy and in fact the inquiry into digital platforms that is currently taking place at the moment has actually excluded the streamers. So the government is not even wow. looking at it. It's not even part of the terms of reference at the moment. Wow. That's, yeah, it's interesting people have said about the all the fires that the majority of people that put money into it and got into, you know, raise all those funds for the, the, the bushfires were art, the arts industry. And it's yeah. like, come on, give back something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. That's, I guess just more and more voices have to raise about it and tell their local member and get in there and get in their faces saying, hey, hey. Because at the end of the day, putting a post on Facebook is not going to do much. But if you actually go and yeah. write a letter to your local member, that's the only way. And that's, that's, you know, that's the apathy that we have to also fight, um, not just from the filmmaker's point of view, but just general public as well that they do want it. So making awareness, I guess. Absolutely. So... Tell us a little bit about the show must go on. I saw it on on uh, ABC, and it was quite an interesting project about the kind of um, mental health that that film filmmakers, but even just uh, any performers and artists, have to deal with the current situation in industry. So, was that your sort of goal with it to make this project happen? So, the show must go on was initiated by um, Ben Steele, who was. Uh, um, an actor who thought that he had his career mapped out in front of him. He did really well on Home and Away after he graduated from acting school and thought, hey, this is acting, and, you know, was really excited about it, you know, nominated for Best New Talent and all the rest of it, until the inevitable happened, which was about two and a half years into the Home and Away show, his character got written out, just a story decision written out. And then he joined the other 95% of all Australian actors who are unemployed at any given time and d quickly discovered he was utterly, utterly unprepared for the 
anxiety uh, followed by the depression and the you know the feelings that came from that process and the struggle of auditioning rejections all the rest of it and he got into a very bad way and actually was seriously contemplating taking his own life which um, thank god he didn't what he did do is start to reach out to a few other colleagues some other actors and just kind of tentatively ask have you ever felt like this and that opened a tsunami of responses and engagement with not only actors but people from right across the spectrum in arts and entertainment. So roadies, musicians, writers, ballet dancers, you name it. Nobody had ever, up until very, very recently, actually looked at the mental well-being of people who work in, in arts entertainment and the incredibly high cost of what it is that we do as freelancers and performers and so on. And Ben found that Australia actually has led the way in this area because uh, Entertainment Assist did the first worldwide survey anywhere uh, about two and a half years ago where they surveyed thousands of people working in performing arts and entertainment and asked them questions about their mental well-being and very, very quickly discovered when they analysed the results, way, way above average incidents. Uh, uh, of clear anxiety, suicide ideation, and then re finding that the actual suicide rate was double the national average for people working in arts and entertainment. So Ben realised he wasn't alone and he um, just started doing the one thing he knew how to do when he wasn't getting acting gigs and that was film interviews. And he just started filming lots and lots of interviews over about a two-year period. He hadn't made a, um, a long documentary film before, so he didn't quite know what was going to be involved. He just knew he needed to get the message out. And he came into my office. He just came into my office one day and showed me some of the footage and the interviews. And it was kind of like one of those moments where you just put everything aside and you just go, oh, my God, we have to do this. Just got to tell this story because uh, it... It's so important that um, that we realise the silence has been around because of the stigma attached, the fact that we we do undertake you know, an incredible amount of pressure uh, in this business. And sure, there are a lot of professions out there that have pressure, but our financial vulnerability, the fact that we deal with rejection day after day, um, the fact that we're often isolated when we're not working, um, that when we are working, we work crazy, you know, 100-hour weeks and then go, go cold turkey at the end of it. Uh, often when the gig finishes, uh, there's a lot of really additional pressures that are actually unique to the kind of way that we work. Mm. So um, for me, um, it just became a matter of championing Ben and helping him and getting the television broadcaster on board, the ABC, and raising the money and for us to not only get that film made, but more importantly, to get the the message out that people were not alone and that there were resources and there was help. But the most biggest part of the help was just realising you're not alone and giving people the opportunity to come together and talk about it, which is why we not only made uh, the documentary, but we also now are rolling out what uh, we call the Wellness Roadshow. So we've been on the road pretty much since September and 
traveling right around the country, you know, holding events, forums, discussions, screenings, and, you know, across the board, trying to help um, people in our industry um, really talk about and feel safe enough to talk about the pressures, the mental, um, you know, health issues that they're facing and give them resources towards mental wellbeing. And it really, uh, I am assuming that uh, the conversations have begun have you seen some repercussions from from this documentary yeah 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 absolutely um we're finding that when people come to the sessions and we're trying to at the moment target a lot of the decision makers so people running arts companies or organizations or television studios or uh producers um as well to get to these sessions because they're thinking about oh wow um we hadn't thought about that we could do things differently uh, you know, there's lots and lots of really practical things that you can do to, um, you know, to help people uh, along the way um, and to help ourselves as well. I mean, just the, the very fact that we can recognise that there, you know, and in, in our industry we do recognise there's a lot of, um, you know, financial vulnerability because you never know where your next dollar is coming from, mm. that... Um, there are, you know, really skilled people out there that can help with, um, you know, thinking about how we can become manager slate or manage alternate revenue streams or have plan B and plan B. You know, there, there is actually really practical good help out there. So you're not just on your own with it. And equally, we all recognise at the end of a big gig, we often feel really, really flat and we often end up with the flu or getting sick or whatever. And you know it's um, coming. So instead of just going, oh, yeah, that, that kind of happens, um, doing things about how we can plan our lives and our family and friends and so on to create space at the end of a big shoot so that, um, you know, you can actually look after your body and soul a bit better, things like that. Just, yeah, there's a lot that can be done. Most importantly, um, things have been instituted like a 24-7 helpline now for people um, in arts and performing uh, live, you know, theatre, etc. So, performing arts, uh, which is a direct result of all of this research. Um, yeah, there's many, many things now that are kind of j just focusing on this issue. Um, and we've been asked to screen it. We've screened it at the ABC. We've shown it to all their staff, for instance. Mm. So, yeah, that gives me heart that people are taking this seriously. Oh, yeah. And it needs to be, especially right now with the coronavirus, people would be in such a dire situation that do live in, you know, week yeah. in and week out and, and then to be just say, no, nah, we're cancelling everything and it's not like there is, you know, like an yeah. income where it's like, oh, well, I'll just go and leave, you know, or yeah. sick leave Look, or whatever. We're very vulnerable now because most of us are on contract work and those contracts are all being cancelled and there's that mm. means zero income on those contracts in many cases. So more than ever we need uh, th this discussion and this support to happen. And to that end, um, all of our contracts have um, been completely postponed and some cancelled. So um, it, with the Wellness Roadshow, we can't roll it out physically because we can't present it in cinemas or, you know, places where we gather people. So we're now um, redesigning the delivery so we can do it all via um, webinars. So we're having to readjust, and uh, which um, we're happy to do, and we you know hope people will continue to get the message now over the you know the next um, twelve months. But there will be an online option to see it. Mm. Taking action, I think, right now is as far as 
yeah, okay, you can't go and make films, but it's about then still maintaining some kind of activity that you're continuing. Because a lot of the projects that were cancelled, I'm sure after it they'll come back and, and do it, but it's just trying to survive that period. <laughs> it makes it hard and, yeah, you need that mental support. So it's good that you guys are doing something along the lines like that. Um, and talking about, like, your focus on these things, you're part of a few other things. The president of Natalie uh, Miller Fellowship, and and you've received the Order of Australia. Like a lot of these things, obviously says that you're quite active in the industry, trying to make change, you know, in a positive way. I get tell us a little bit about both things that you're part of, and and when you received the Order of Australia, what that meant to you. Sure. Oh, look, that that you know, it is an honour, um, in the sense that. You know, it's an acknowledgement, I guess, because uh, so much of what I do is behind the scenes and um, it's kind of like, oh, okay, so people did notice and it actually made a difference. For me, it's just about making a difference. Um, I've always, you know, been a you know passionate advocate for the screen industry and have worked on a number of different fronts. And at the moment, you know, my passion projects uh, have been very much around mental well-being and also around um, really working with others to um, to try and make our feature film sector viable. So there's a lot of work going behind the scenes right now on that, which you'll hear more about going forward. But the one thing that has been consistent over the last 30 years has been my commitment to ensuring that women get an opportunity to have voice on the screen and get those stories told. And that's been through everything from setting up women in film and television back in the late 80s um, in Victoria through to working more recently on Gender Matters and then 10 years ago being part of the founding group for the Natalie Miller Fellowship. The, the fellowship um, is really an extension, I think, of what Gender Matters is on about and that is getting uh, more diverse representation on our screens and enabling uh, gender equality in not only though you know the films that we see on screen but who gets to make gets to make those films whose stories you know get to tell writers directors composers cinematographers and so on um and there's been a lot of work gone into the production and development end of that i.e you know just kick-starting and getting more women being able to tell their stories but of course they'll go nowhere nowhere until you address the question who gets to green light what is made in this country mm. in the first instance so who gets to green light the finance and then secondly who gets to green light the finished production onto the screens so what gets broadcast or what gets screened in cinemas the natalie miller fellowship is really concerned with that end of the equation and that's the leadership so where our, this organisation is really about recognising and nurturing the next generation of female leaders. And we have a number of programs. We have an annual $20,000 fellowship. We run leadership programs. But all of it is geared to having more women around the table deciding whose stories get told and encouraging, you know, more women to step into those positions of leadership. Mm. Top down, that's going to work rather than bottom up. Because you know, there's a lot of talk right now about bottom up. You know, lots more female crews in in production. But yeah, like you said, if they are top down, they don't make those decisions on on some of those uh, projects, then you know, it's not going to go very far. 
But over the last 10 years, we've, we've seen more and more women move into those executive positions. Um, and that's not to say, you know, every individual woman is just woman in an executive position is going to make the way easier for all the other women coming through. But it does open the way for a female point of view in those key critical board meetings and decision meeting, meetings. And it opens the way for, you know, greater diversity of discussion. Um, but it also makes commercial sense. The bottom line is, you know, if you're not addressing the needs of half the population, you're missing out on a great commercial opportunity, um, mm. quite apart from, you know, the really, really important cultural argument. And, it, you know, it's been the way it has and and and... I think it's really important now to make it the norm. I think that's sort of my angle on on this situation that it needs to become norm that we're all people. It's not yeah. female, male, but we do have our unique perspectives and having that, like you said, the diversity, and therefore decisions get made a lot more healthier, not just from you know one sort of view. And I think that's really important to, for especially the future in Australia for filmmaking and 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 any kind of media production um because i think that just helps it make it a richer story at the I, end of the I day i totally agree with you and in fact um one of the things i'm most proud of at the moment is that five years ago out uh, there was a festival uh, and there is a festival called the setting sun festival that happens at the sun theater in yarraville in melbourne each year mm, and yeah. this um festival when they first started um programming noticed that there were so few short films, you know, from women. And so we got talking and I said, okay, they wanted to run a – and they put together a program of women's short films called Rouge. And in that first year when there was sort of something like about less than, you know, 15 short films across the board that were in the entire program, uh, I said, okay, well, I'm going to put up a prize. You know, we'll have, you know, a, um, a prize for, you know, the best film by a female filmmaker to try and kickstart interest. Well, unbelievably, in five years, it's gone exponentially and the number of films and the quality of the films is so good now that in its fifth year, uh, and they will be making the announcement shortly, um, unfortunately the whole thing's been pushed back because of, you know, the coronavirus, um, but there are way, way too many quality films from women now just to put in a single program. So we're getting rid of that program and it's just programming of women's films right across the whole festival and I'm delighted. That is exactly what we're working to, um, you know, equal numbers and, um, you know, quality work and just right across the board that you don't have to necessarily have special initiatives anymore. So to me... That is, you know, one of the big, big success stories over the past five years that I'm really proud of. Wow, that's wonderful. That's good Good to hear. It's good to hear that good news stories because I think we don't also, Aussies aren't very good at celebrating the good news stories. So mm. getting things like that out is important to let people know that mm. it's the change is happening and it's, it's mm. heading to the right direction. And uh, so... With uh, all that, you've got a lot of things on your hands. How do you how do you keep your life balanced? No. <laughs> how does that how does that occur? Good question. Don't know how to answer that one in five minutes. <laughs> oh, well. um, I don't necessarily know that I do always keep it in balance. Um, I guess the question is how do I keep sane? And um, mm. for me, um, the keys to keeping sane is definitely working on things I love. Um, I've never been in this 
um, screen industry because I, you know, want to run a big business and, you know, it's um, if I want to do that, I'd probably be much smarter to work in a different uh, industry, frankly. But um, it's, to me, working on things that matter. So um, I've been able to do that in a way that I can work with a small team and we scale up and scale down accordingly depending on, you know, we can do a low-budget web series or a documentary and then scale up and do, you know, a big film like The Dressmaker. To me, that um, has been really important to kind of keep it contained and small uh, and flexible and nimble um, so that I'm not stressed every night about how to run a business. Um, the other key is I have an unbelievably supportive partner and I don't know, I don't think I could do it on my own. Uh, so I'm very, very fortunate in that regard. Um, and the other plank is that I um, I do recognise that there is never a good time to have a break or a holiday and I am a workaholic. So the only way that I can do it is by carving out specific times in the calendar where I'm just telling everybody from this date to this date, I'm down in Tassie and I run away to Tassie, <laughs> which I love. Um mm. So I, you know, get right away for at least, you know, three to four weeks every year. Um, and good. at home I try and get out into the garden. That's the thing that keeps me sane is um, just, you know, physically getting out of my head and the stress by just uh, growing things. And that uh, I suppose it's the country girl. <laughs> it, uh, that's how I keep sane. Wow. Yeah, well, that's, that's the main thing as long as you're aware of it and you uh, make time for it as well um so important you know and finding um, for me it's like finding although mine's a different creative outlet it's yeah finding another hobby that's not necessarily to do with what you do i think is so important to just give you a bit of break from from it all because you're just non-stop you know i'm sure you would be like that you're just non-stop yes. thinking about all sorts of projects and ideas and so on so on so yeah i think that's a key thing to try and find a different hobby to help you uh, maintain that and uh, what's uh, what's down the, the line for you as far as future projects? Um, do you have any pro large projects or even smaller ones that yeah, you're well, planning like to say, go? Yeah, you know, keep, keeping nimble and working across a diverse slate is the key. So, yes, um, I have everything from we're still rolling out the Wellness Roadshow after the show must go on. Um, we have other documentaries um, in development, I'm EPing two f documentary films that will come out this year, Brazen Hussies, which is about the history of the feminist movement, um, it, the second wave feminist movement in Australia, which I'm really excited about. And it is brazen and it's really good fun. Um, through to financing the next feature film with Jocelyn Morehouse, which is a real priority at the moment, and um, developing potentially um, some television. Wow. Plenty on the table. That's good. And for a final fun question, what is your favourite film that you love to watch? doesn't have to be the best film in the world, but you just love watching. Uh, I, the film that I love watching, that I've watched many times, I could still keep watching, um, is Cabaret. So the Bob Fosse uh, musical mm. because it's funny, it's sad, it's brilliantly choreographed and entertaining musical, but it's like you know, really hard-hitting politics in terms of looking at um, 
the period of the rise of fascism in uh, you know Weimar Germany just prior to the Second World War beginning, mm. um, and in Austria where it's set. So um, to me, it encapsulates everything that cinema is, which is emotion, cinema spectacle, incredible surprise, and uh, that deep engagement into worlds other than your own. So to me, it's almost like the perfect film. Yeah, well, that, that describes very much what you talked about early on. So there you go. That makes sense. <laughs> All right. Well, so thank you so much for giving us your time and, and the insights. That was really wonderful. And really uh, look forward to hopefully meeting face-to-face again sometime, but just seeing your projects evolve and your, you know, all different projects, not just necessarily film stuff. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. No, it's been great to talk with you. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up again soon. Well, that was Sue Maslinao. And so wonderful to hear a perspective from a producer and getting a film off the ground. You know, sometimes us creatives, we're obsessed about creating a piece of film and and shooting it, but sometimes you actually need someone who's got both sides of the coin where they're able to be a a real really good at business and also be creative and to produce a beautiful piece of content. Next week coming up, we've got a pretty exciting announcement. We have Alex Proyas, the director of some of the biggest science fiction movies, iRobot, Dark City, and we'll probably be more discussing about the current situation we're in to do with, obviously, the coronavirus lockdowns and also the future of filmmaking itself, which he's really passionate about. And so that's going to be our sort of main focus on that uh, podcast. So come and have a listen and see what he's got to say and some of his ideas and, and just to hear him uh, passionately talk about the industry and you know how we can make it a future for it so thank you again for listening and look out for it next week with alex poirous 